episode 386 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express today do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our uh, families, friends, pets, and maybe not even our own three weeks from today. Today on the News Roundup, we've got uh, Megan Stiffel, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at the Institute for Security and Technology, and Nate Jones, co-founder of Culpra Partners, formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council. Uh, And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. I, I, the, I don't think there's a big story today. And this story I thought I'd lead with because it is legal. And Nate's going to say it was perfectly predictable. <laughs> uh, and I guess uh, once they uh, chose an uh, Obama-appointed judge, maybe it was. But the Texas social media law has been overturned by a district judge in Texas. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know that I'd say anything in the federal court system is perfectly predictable, but if anything is, this is probably as close as it gets, I would say. So yeah, conservatives' effort to intimidate or legislate their way into forcing social media platforms into their propaganda network has has hit another speed bump. You know, Texas passed. <laughs> now come on, all they all they asked was to to, to ensure fair and balanced. Uh, uh, some neutrality. Yes, sure, exactly. fair and balanced, like Fox News. Texas passed a law that, according to its sponsors, was intended to allow Texas to participate on the virtual town square, free from censorship by big bad liberals from Silicon Valley. The law prohibits. Only large social media companies from censoring, quote unquote, users uh, or content based on the, quote unquote, viewpoint expressed. Um, and it goes a, a step further and also requires them to to publish a litany of information to the public from their content curation and moderation policies, <clears throat> more details on their search and, and other algorithms that they use to prioritize content or um, deliver it to users, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> the judge actually struck both of these aspects of the law down, and you know it, it essentially uh, analogized these social media companies to traditional newspapers or other editorial processes that are protected under the Constitution, under the First Amendment. And the judge pointed to a line of Supreme Court cases that state fairly clearly that private companies that use editorial judgment to choose whether to publish content cannot be compelled by the government to publish other content. This, this, this is, is really the Tornillo line of cases, yeah. right? So the, the Miami right. uh, Herald, I think it was. And those cases are not without, they, they are very clear, but there is another set of cases that seem to suggest that when you're talking about protecting the speech rights of individuals who may be on the receiving end of large corporate uh, uh, speech suppression, that there is a reason to take into account their speech rights. Those are two kind of almost like ships passing in the night in terms of how they handle each other. Uh, And, uh, you know, so you get to choose which one you like, depending on which outcome you like. Obviously, this judge like the outcome saying, uh, oh, you can't tell uh, them anything about how they curate their their content. And I think that was the particular, that was the predictable part of this. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think what you're referring to there is the, the transparency portion of the law, which was more struck down under uh, the burdensomeness of the, right. the process of, of publishing all that information in the. So there, well, no, there are cases in which the 
Supreme Court has said, well, you know, yes, you have a First Amendment right as a publisher to do a bunch of things, but we, but the government is entitled to value the free speech rights of the people you refuse to publish uh, and to impose some burdens on you in the interest of protecting their free speech. That's, that, that, those cases probably are not the, the, the most favored or predominant set of precedents. I'm guessing they reflect better the way the current court would view this, but I, I, I don't think you can really criticize a district court judge for following Supreme Court uh, cases like Kurt Tornillo that haven't been overruled. Yeah. I do think you can criticize the the second half of this, which is the transparency requirements and striking that down. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. It's a a little bit closer call, although you know I think that's more curable, frankly, by Texas here. I think even if you believe that the judge was right on the the second part of this, the transparency report. You know, Texas could come back and narrow in on things and make it a little bit easier for the companies to report this. And, and yeah, it might I would, be I would argue survive. that Texas, I'd argue that Texas did. They said, oh, go ahead and sever parts of this that you think are unconstitutional and leave the rest. And he says, oh, no, that's too much work. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm just going to strike it all down. That's, <laughs> it, it, it's that sort of approach to this, the kind of casual, oh, come on, we know what I'm about here. We've got to get rid of this entire law that that make me think that on appeal, or if it goes to the Supreme Court, his ruling is not going to look that good. Well, we'll see. I mean, I think on your, your first point about, you know, the free speech rights of, of the recipients of the content, I think the judge didn't speak specifically to that. But the reason, you know, he didn't argue that the the Texas legislature is powerless to do anything here. But, you know, where they failed is that the interests they were, you know, the stated interests that they were seeking to protect weren't significant enough. And the remedy they put in place through this legislation very clearly was not narrowly tailored enough to try to advance those. And I think that's the argument the judge made here. And I think that is, is going to be a hard area for the Texas legislature to really cure if their goal is to stamp out this perceived bias, which is entirely made up. No, it's not made up. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very real. But uh, well, uh, a couple but other I, things I think, that he did, did that I think are hard to justify, you can try justifying them. He said, everybody knows that the problem, if there's a problem, it's that very large social media firms have acquired enormous and very quickly acquired a sway over what we can and cannot say as a political matter about, you know, what we think of the go governance of our country. And it's only, you know, you're, if you're going to do something drastic about that, you ought to limit it to the people who have gatekeeper authority. And that's why Texas said only the biggest social media companies are subject to this. He says, oh, well, that you only did that because the little guys are the conservatives. And, and so this is obviously just a form of viewpoint discrimination. I think that's kind of odd, uh, specious. I, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> I look, I think that if Texas was a little more careful in creating their legislative record here, they might have done better on that front. But when you read the record and, and the quotes that the judge cites, you know, in their fervor to, to you know, cater to their right wing base, they're saying you know, they're saying things that make it sound like they clearly are targeting 
Silicon Valley for their perceived viewpoint, which is, you know, in my view, again, a caricature of their actual viewpoint, but it, it does look like it's viewpoint motivated and they should have been more careful. <clears throat> well, maybe, you know, but I, you know, frankly, if you're going to be honest, if you don't like the fact that four big companies get to tell us what we can and cannot say, even to our friends and family about political issues, it, uh, you ask, well, how, is it doing any harm? And if, if you say, yeah, they, they wouldn't let us say Kyle Rittenhouse should be acquitted for the entire time prior to his actual acquittal, that's a big deal. And if you can't express the viewpoint you think they are suppressing because it's viewpoint discrimination, as soon as you say, look, they're suppressing a viewpoint that I think shouldn't be suppressed, then the whole idea of viewpoint discrimination becomes a tool for saying you can never regulate these guys for the power that they have acquired over our national discourse. I, so I, I do think that there's a redundancy to, to what he's saying. Yeah, but I think the, the flip side is also true, right? That if you don't allow discrimination based on any viewpoint, you basically eliminate their ability to moderate content. And, yes. I, I, I am and, not. No one says that. that they and so do there's got to be a middle ground here. And I think, you know, part of the problem and, and what I think this the Texas law betrays a little bit here is it's their problem is less about the enforcement of the rules. And it's more about the rules that they don't like, because there is and, and this I think there is some truth to. There is a disproportionate impact on conservative voices who tend to violate those rules. Now, this isn't really a debate they want to have. They don't want to debate whether, you know, promoting violence or glorifying it should be permitted or not. But that's where I think the real debate is. And if we had that debate, we could, you know, yeah, well, but, you know but what I, they're just I, trying I, to I, knock I, out is, is uh, moderation <laughs> entirely. I, 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 I disagree. I, and it, it is, you know, it's very hard to separate your own point of view from the people who are a little more extreme. But it's easy to recognize violence, uh, to see violent speech on the other side of the spectrum, where people who are closer to that side of the spectrum see an over-the-top bit of rhetoric or a joke. And, you know, how seriously do you take it when a comedian holds up the severed head of Donald Trump? Is that a call to violence or is that just an extreme expression of your political views? And when, or when Steve Bannon says, you know, what we need in order to cure this problem is heads on pikes. You know, do you really think he wants heads on pikes? I mean, I think that's uh, dubious, but he got kicked off for. I'm not sure that the comedian did. And so it is both enforcement, which in which the vague rules always seem to, to hit the right side of the spectrum, and to some extent, the rules themselves, because, uh, you know, there are things you can't say. You, you can't take a position which probably more than half the country takes, which is that people who are transgender uh, uh, should not be just accorded automatically the gender that they have chosen without thinking pretty hard about the consequences. Uh, you're not allowed to say that. You, you cannot say somebody uh, used to be a male, I think, uh, even though most people would say, well, that's a factual statement. So that's a way in which the, the rule itself prevents statement of certain kinds of uh, uh, positions. The Rittenhouse thing was a matter of how they applied the rule. They said, oh, that he's a mass murderer. So, you know, we don't allow people to praise him. And 
I, so I think there are problems both with the rules as written and with how they are enforced. I've been thinking about this. There ought to be some way to measure and enforce if we had enough data and to say, you know, what kinds of objective behavior actually get enforced against. Because I'm pretty sure that you would discover that people on the right get it, uh, the rules enforced against them more. Maybe they get yeah. turned in but more often. The question often. is, is it because they're, they're violating those rules more often or is it because somebody's biased against them and is, is unfairly enforcing those rules? Well, do you I think, think that's do you, do you a key think, question. Do you think Steve Bannon was violating a rule against advocating violence when he talked about uh, having, I think it was Fauci and Burks, having their heads on pikes? Uh, yeah. Do you really? Yeah. That was, you know, I'm sorry. I I I see that meme a lot. You can draw a very clear line between that rhetoric and and actual violence that has occurred in places. All the heads on pikes that I think all the heads on pikes we saw. I think it's sorry. They may not have carried it out in exactly the manner that they wanted, and and that's I think you know one of the frankly one of the flaws with the the very limited carve outs that they had in this law, but. I think there's one more thing that it's really important to lose, not to lose sight of here and why this ultimately failed on constitutional grounds. You said before, you know, people need to be able to tell their family and friends that Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, that they think he was innocent before the verdict comes down. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. If that's your view, certainly not mine, but it could be your view. But you have a, a number, almost an unlimited number of ways to do that, Right. And it's a very different thing to go to a private company and say, you have to carry this message to the ends of the earth, even if you find it objectionable. And there's there's no constitutional right for those people to have a private company use their platform to disseminate that opinion as far and wide as that person wants their opinion disseminated. And that is ultimately why this law was struck down because what the Texas legislature is trying to do is to tell Facebook and Twitter and other social media companies, you have to take everything these people say and put it on an even platform with everything else that comes out and send it to everybody. Who- no, no, not to send it to everybody, send it to everybody who wants it, right? That, 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 that's how these algorithms ought to work and by and large, Work you can't, when they're not you can't factor with, viewpoint into right? your you algorithm either. You have the, to the, the put these of, things on par with views that are contrary to that to make sure you're being even-handed. And no, so, you just have, just not, have to not suppress them. But again, there's, but, you know, there's no if, evidence if, of that either in the record or in the public record. And, well, sure. They, 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 Facebook said, we're not going to let you talk about Kyle Rittenhouse. We're not going to let you say certain things about Kyle Rittenhouse. But that's a rule they state, and you can debate whether or not that's the right rule, but that's the rule they adopted. And and what I'm saying is there's right. no allegation that they're applying that unfairly to people. You just don't like the rule, and that's fine. Well, I, I mean, uh, not applying mm-hmm. it unfairly, mm-hmm. I, 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 I guess since since 12 people found him uh, innocent or not guilty, I, it's there's a reasonable basis for concluding that Facebook was wrong all along. <laughs> I <laughs> I don't want to go all down right. that road uh, all right. because we'll be here all day. But I think the fundamental point remains that what what Texas is trying to do here, and and it may have been hyperbolic a moment ago, but what they're trying to do here is take a private company and push them to disseminate these people's content beyond what they're currently doing. 
And, well, what, it, it, and that's, not, what the, that's what the Constitution and the Tornillo line of cases says very clearly the government cannot do. They cannot force private companies to publish people's letters to the editor. They can't publish every op-ed you write in the New York Times just because you want it there, right? They well, have that's because editorial they control. But 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 the F Facebook is not saying, oh, you know, we've got a supply chain problem with electrons. <laughs> we can't get them out there. I, you know, they certainly can publish these. They publish everything, and then they pick but and they choose what they're not going to focus. Right, and it's very clear that trying to achieve balance is not a legitimate state interest. So Again, I, 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 yes, I, I read the, I read the law as saying, don't use political standards to decide what speech you're not going to carry. That's, that is different from saying you need to make sure that everything you carry is balanced and, and that the distribution of it meets some abstract fairness rules. I, that's impossible to meet. I agree. All right. Okay. So I think we have beaten that horse to death. And, you know, if the horse had a right of self-defense, it would have invoked it by now. Let's, let it, let's turn to TSA, which is regulating, or if you listen to some Republicans, over-regulating cybersecurity in the rail sector. Megan, what did TSA do? Man, am I not glad I'm not Nate. Very well done, Mr. Jones. Thank you. So it's, what did TSA do? So it, folks will remember, of course, who could forget that people were filling up grocery bags with gasoline over the summer, which prompted CISA following an attack on the Colonial Pipeline Company, which of its own volition decided to turn off access to the pipelines, the pipes that, pumping, that are pumping the refined gasoline up and down the East Coast, not that the pipelines, the pipeline itself was ransomed and that often gets lost. So following this, TSA actually pursued or distributed two security directives. And some have encouraged TSA to take a close look at its the scope of its existing authorities and whether or not it's using all of those authorities to do what it should and could to protect other pieces of critical infrastructure over which TSA has jurisdiction. So in contrast to what was issued over the summer, which were security directives, TSA has now issued an enhancing surface transportation cybersecurity information circular. In other words, this is advisory. Now, you can say, if it's advisory, it's still coming from your potential regulator, so you, maybe you shouldn't just sort of print it out and shred it, or not even print it out. But essentially, it applies to railroad owners and operators, passenger railroads, public transportation agencies, and rail transit system owners and operators, again, defined by the Code of Federal Regulation, and over-the-road bus owners and operators. And it talks about offering guidance to do four things, which strike me as, are you seriously kidding me? These people aren't doing this already? I mean, come on. So they're first supposed to identify a cybersecurity coordinator to be available to TSA and CISA at all times to coordinate implementation of cybersecurity practices. That's number one. Number two, that uh, it recommends reporting cybersecurity incidents to CISA. Remember the pipeline one this, requires- This is the one thing they're not, this is the one thing they're not probably doing. Okay. You're okay. Yeah. <laughs> The third I can imagine people not having done no, this. Sure, the rest sure. of it, I agree. I'm with, I'm with you. It, it's insane that they're, they're they're not doing the other thing. The third is to develop an incident response plan, and the fourth is to conduct uh, vulnerability assessments. So again, you know, how long have we been talking about this? I mean, Stuart, this predates me and my time yeah. in government, which was now also no, a long time right, ago. No, but you know, it's kind of common sense. This is this is, this is the the bare minimum that somebody should be doing, I think. And so the calling CISA must be what's bothering the, the, the real guys. 
The only other thing I can think of is that they don't like the idea that DHS could be telling them what they ought to do. They would rather have a regulator that they'd already captured talking to them about these things. So it then goes, you know, it's like seven pages long. It then goes into talking about some specifics about what the cybersecurity coordinator should do and contact information, reporting cybersecurity incidents, the types of incidents. Again, this is pretty common sense. Like if you discover malicious software on an IT or OT system, please let CISA know. And why is this important? You know, it's not that, that CISA with all of its regulatory authorities, right? No, wants to come after them. It's that it wants to protect the nation's critical infrastructure. So actually, wouldn't you rather send it to CISA? And I think, you know, it's I'm pretty sure that it's clear that CISA can't necessarily send a criminal referral over to its captured regulator, right? So we're trying to build a common operating picture to pr- protect critical infrastructure, not to haul people before Congress. But if you ask me, I think so, they should be so called before Congress the- if this is the crap that they have to be told to do. So it, it maybe the problem is 24 hours. Right. That's a pretty short timeline. And in the legislative process, the cybersecurity incident report requirement that still hasn't quite mm-hmm. made it into the law, but which might, was stretched out to 72 hours, I think. And the trigger point moved from a good faith belief that you've had a, a compromise to a determination that you've had a compromise. This one says, within 24 hours of identifying a problem, which so seems, strikes me as somewhere in between the two. So maybe they just think they're being pushed to identify these things too soon. But I, the, the reaction has been over the top. You know, the railway industry has been saying, this is shocking. I, I don't quite get what their, what the problem is, but maybe I didn't pay enough attention. You, do, you, do you see what they're complaining about? I, I think the 24-hour is the most logical one. I have not seen what they've been complaining about per se, but at the same time though, when we think about kind of large objects flying down the road and, and 24 versus 72 yeah. hours, you know, it's, yeah, it's yeah, kind it, of important. It, it turns out <laughs> this, it, it, you know, it used to make a big difference whether you had to make a, how soon you had mm-hmm. to make a public disclosure of a breach because you were basically saying, sue me. But this is a, a relatively confidential communication with a federal government regulator, you're not saying sue me to them. You're saying there's a problem. Uh, and the regulator is going to ask follow-up questions. So the the idea that you ought to call within 24 hours and say, we might have a problem here, is much less troublesome than the idea that you should uh, notify the plaintiff's bar to gear up the, the class action machinery. Mm-hmm. All right. The U.S. Nate has said it's going to lead a global effort to cut back on authoritarian use of surveillance tools. And I thought this was related to the fact that there was a story that Chris Bing had the exclusive on, because he he owns this beat, uh, about Apple phones belonging to State Department officials having been hacked using Israeli spyware. And I'm not sure that they're actually related, but what is the U.S. actually, the U.S. government actually planning to do about authoritarian use of surveillance tools? Yeah, I think you're, I agree with you on the the State Department story. I mean, it may be further validation of what they're doing, but it seems to me that they've been heading down this path for some time. I think yep. this is, if anything, probably an outgrowth of the the NSO fiasco, where the U.S. government imposed sanctions on NSO and and a couple of other spyware companies. In response to that, what 
the government of Israel did was basically greenlight NSO and others to sell to certain a long list of countries, most of which are relatively free and may not be terribly objectionable even to the some in the U.S. government. But they haven't ruled out and will still grant export licenses potentially to NSO and others to sell to regimes beyond that that greenlighted list, and so. So I think this is about the U.S. government trying to impose some pressure on Israel and other places that are are regularly exporting these things to to them. You know, there's a beyond sanctions. There's there's a relatively little they can do at this point. You know, the the offending governments like Israel haven't shown a great deal of interest in joining an international club like this to impose strict rules on their own. But, but that may come. Israel is yeah. not part of the Wassenaar Agreement, but it has followed the Wassenaar standards, it, it would tell you. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> there's one country that's not part of Wassenaar that is the, the biggest seller of surveillance tools on the planet. It's China. Yeah. Uh, and I guess I my question, you know, I'll appoint you to represent the U.S. government. Uh, uh, <laughs> what do they think? I, you know, they're just going to hand over this market to China. There's no real human rights value in this effort, is there? I think there is. I mean, look, what they're not going to put together a, a global club. They're not going to get everybody in this and they're not going to, you know, even necessarily get all the rules that they would like to see imposed on people as part of the club they do get. But their goal is to put together a group of like-minded countries, you know, put down a, a set of rules that they expect the world to abide by. And, you know, I think the longer term hope is that when, you know, whether it's it's companies in Israel or China or, or wherever they may emanate from in the future, to have then something to point to, to say, we must do something about this. And it becomes a, a way of you know, formalizing a set of rules that you can then get your allies to try to help you enforce. And so it's internationalizing a response to this problem. And, but and only, some of those only efforts if will... they, They're not going to enforce this by um, not selling these products because there's a willing seller and a willing buyer outside of the system. So this has to, to, to enforce this, they'd have to be willing to actually sanction China. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> and and I think you know that's why you're seeing them push for an international conversation about this because you know as we saw with the last administration, you can slap all kinds of sanctions on them. It doesn't mean it's going to change their behavior, especially if you're doing it all by yourself. And so I think they're hoping that over the longer term, this will set up a system of rules that then they can try to encourage their partners to enforce through sanctions and potentially other means. But whether it's going to be effective, like you, I'm a little more skeptical over the long term that it's really going to entirely rein in this practice. Yeah. I assume that the, the preferred European sanction is shaming at Davos. All right. Hey, so uh, this is a story in the markup. I want to take this one, uh, although, Nate, I'm sure you'll disagree with me, uh, because it shows just how relentlessly prejudiced the press is on AI bias claims. They just they have to find bias every time they look at artificial intelligence and algorithms. And they've been selling this story for close to 10 years, and yet the story Till turn out to be just crap. This is a story from the markup, uh, and they got, I guess I would describe it as quasi-hacked data from a company called Predpol or 
Now they've got a new name. It was in an unsecured cloud bucket, which means that I should have secured it and failed to. So it's not quite hacking, although we would call it hacking if uh, somebody had done other things with the data. And then they, they these were predictions about where the police should go to find criminals, crimes in progress, uh, people who police support in a hurry. And it localizes an entire city and says, here are high crime neighborhoods, high crime blocks, etc. And you should spend time, you should actually go there and do your paperwork in this area because there's likely to be a crime that you need to stop. That's the theory. Uh, and this so-called expose looks through it and says, oh my goodness, they're predicting more crime in poor black neighborhoods than in rich white neighborhoods. This is obviously racism. Uh, uh, and uh, there's not an effort to even uh, determine as a control, you know, suppose we controlled for crime rate and then asked whether this disproportionately affected black or Hispanic neighborhoods. They don't even bother with that. They just say, uh, you know, since we can find a disparate effect, it must be racially biased. In fact, later in the article, they say, oh, actually, it turns out that actual arrest records correspond pretty well to predictions of future crimes, which is sort of what you'd expect. Uh, certainly tends to push against the racism narrative. And their response to that, which was devastating to their basic thesis, is to say, well, that just goes to show we don't even need these tools at all because we could just use the arrest rates. You know, what a scam this is. So it's kind of six of one, half dozen of the other, tails I win, uh, heads you lose. And it's just, there are probably dozens of stories like this in which people's uh, definition of what makes an algorithm racist is utterly naive. And their complete lack of curiosity about why these patterns uh, have uh, existed is striking. So, uh, you know, the markup gets my AI bias bias story of the of the week award. Uh, now, Nate, you're not obliged to defend the markup uh, here, but you're you're free to. <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't read the story, and okay. you know, I think a lot of it kind of depends on why the. AI algorithms are reaching the conclusion they're reaching, you know, and what data they're basing these things on. But I would just note that it sounds like you've almost repurposed my argument from the first segment of today and, and now applied it in the reverse to. Uh, yeah, it's my first, it's their First Amendment right to say this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, disproportionate I, it's, impact it, does not equal bias. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, fair enough. Uh, I I am uh, I'm very surprised uh, at how bad the uh, the journalism is here and how completely without criticism this journalism uh, turns out to be. Yeah. All right, let's let's dive deep into something we've never talked about on this show, as far as I know, which is smart contracts and. In keeping with the, uh, the snarky uh, tone of uh, the, the the show, we're only going to talk about smart contracts when they turn out to be stupid. Uh, so, Megan, uh, tell us um, what happened in this case that cost the uh, the smart contract designers thirty one million dollars. Yes. So this is the the woeful story of Monax Finance. Um which is a blockchain startup that uh, I think last Wednesday disclosed that that a hacker stole $31 million by exploiting 
guess what? A software bug. And the the exploit that was used here, essentially one to sort of, I'll, I'll bastardize this a bit, but essentially put and call themselves. And so the the when they contributed the token in, the token out would then basically overwrite the price. And so they basically drove the price up. So yeah, they they used their same, they, they had the same token. And basically the idea was if you put a token in, if you have a token in and you, you take, let's say, five cents out of it and give it to another token, then they take five cents out of your uh, token mm-hmm. and add five cents to the other token. But since the token was the same token, what happened is first they took the five cents out then they put the five cents in, then they revalued it as five cents more. But they were revaluing the thing that they had first decremented. And the result was without doing anything, they had five cents more. And if you do that often enough, you acquire a lot of money. In fact, $31 million. So that's, and then they cashed out. Yes. It turned out though, that it wasn't just sort of, it was not a one-time trade. So I guess it was, you know, 18 million in wrapped Ethereum, 10 million in Matic tokens and 2 million worth of WT. WBDC. But what's troubling here is that, you know, in theory, they try to do the right thing, right? These these blockchain startups and the others have this great code. So they did a security audit of our code, not just one, but three. I don't actually I don't know if it was a security audit, but they had their code audited three times last year. And as the, as you know, I think it was Dan who wrote this article said, he talks to a few experts, of course, and say, just because you had a security audit doesn't mean they actually did found what they needed to find. And the difference between thinking about vulnerability elimination and doing, uh, looking at other ways to try and verify that the code is, is it intends, acts as it's intended to. So it's doing I think a that's job. a little unfair. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, a, a security audit, especially if you're looking at source, is just basically the equivalent of what lawyers do when they do a site check and a, uh, a search for typographical errors, right? And we all know that you could have three smart people read the, your brief before you file it, and there's still going to be a typo in there if you're not careful. A, a, and enough. that's what happened here. Well, yes, but I mean, it's not like the right graphic didn't show in on the web interface, right? I mean, this is the the crux of their product was garbage. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, I garbage. They they did not realize that they it it didn't occur to them that somebody would do this. And, and that's why they didn't protect against it. I, it is interesting that this is so close to law that it's hard even to call it because it's not so much software. This, was, this is a contract that says, if you do these things, we will pay you. And somebody actually did something that the contract made legal. It, it isn't hacking exactly. It's really clever nasty lawyering. My, one of my favorite parts of the story was at the end of the things that they had done to try and you know, keep their reputation. And the last was, we will file a formal police report. Not we have, we will. We will file a formal police report as we're cleaning up the mess from this. So, um. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, in other circumstances, people have actually voided contracts and rewritten the, the blockchain to write out the, the, the scam artist who, uh, who pulled off the scam. I think they did not do that here. But it does, it shows, I think, what lawyers have always known, that there is no such thing as foolproof law or foolproof contracts. There are contracts that ought to be good enough in the context, but you can't provide for every possible eventuality. So it raises questions whether it makes sense to say, okay, you follow this contract and you're guaranteed to get paid. Uh, That's the problem. Mm -hmm. All right. Nate, I, I don't know how much 
of a story there is here. Russia is still holding Twitter hostage to get them to take down some content that Russia doesn't like. And they've their tool is just to slow things down so that Twitter is just painfully slow to use, at least on a phone. And that seems to be bringing Twitter around slowly, but eventually bringing them around. Yeah, it, I would say they're actually using two tactics. The the first one is slander, <laughs> where they're accusing Twitter of leaving out child pornography and other either clearly illegal or offensive conduct that most Russians would find abhorrent. And so I think they're they're kind of seemingly trying to discredit Twitter's reputation, at least domestically, with the audience that's going to listen to the Russian government. And as you said, sort of degrade the quality of the service Twitter's offering to turn people away from its product. I mean, you know, this is ostensibly being done under regulatory obligations that Russia has imposed on large social media companies and others, you know, but they have a, it would, this is not a unique problem to Russia. Lots of governments are facing this around the world. They have little practical ability to actually force them under domestic laws to do the things they want them to do. And so they typically, you know, Russia is not the first one to resort to these kinds of, of tactics. I think though, what, what, what we're what seeing, what we're seeing is that, that the, the governments that are really determined to do this have finally started to find ways to, to make it happen. The, the Chinese, of course, have just tossed these guys out on their ear. Russia, maybe even Turkey, have, have found ways just to punish them that actually matter. To require them to, to hire local staffs who, who can be arrested uh, and to and and then this selective slowdown really strikes at the heart of the you know to the extent that Twitter has a business model it strikes at the heart of the Twitter business model which is it's real time news from people that you want to get news from uh, so I think you know what this says is uh, you can't you can't count these authoritarian governments out by saying. Oh, you know, the uh, the internet will conquer all. Yeah. And I think that's right. I mean, I think Russia's looking for pressure points as as you're suggesting to try to get them to bend to their will. And the thing that I think most countries in this space have had problems with, you know, China being one of the few exceptions is you know, you don't have many cards to play when these companies aren't making a lot of money in your market and may not really ultimately care all that much about whether or not things slow down. I mean, longer term, it's going to, you know, potentially, as I said, degrade their reputation on two fronts and, and maybe turn people away from the service and allow others to, to sneak in and, and take away market share from them. And you know, if they have designs on making a lot of money in Russia at some future date, maybe that matters to them. But right now, I would bet their revenue from Russian outlets, you know, between the sanctions that are in place and, and the other practical reasons, they probably just aren't making a lot of money there. And so this probably just doesn't, I wouldn't be surprised if this just doesn't matter that much to them. Well, but, it, but it, from Putin's point of view, if they b abandoned the Russian market, he would not be crying either. So right. exactly. uh, it's it, a win-win for him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Megan, I, this is a, this is just a cute story. If you're doing security for a company and you aren't attacked with ransomware, I, you should see it as a market opportunity for you. Right, right. Yeah, this is like a you know insider threat meets ransomware sort of. So it, this is the sad case of Ubiquity Networks, which former staff member was arrested and charged by DOJ in connection with a hack uh, in which he stole 
gigabytes of data and then accept, attempted to extort the, the firm. So it's a, the case of this gentleman, Nicholas Sharp, who was a software engineer uh, for about not quite three years. So presumably they probably would have had time if they were doing a decent amount of networking to kind of network management to see that he might be up to some unusual tricks, apparently exceeded his authorized access to both the AWS servers and the GitHub repositories. And it w- went undisclosed for a while what was going on. So then we, we find out that kind of in January of this year, there's this disclosure that Ubiquity tells folks to change their to change their passwords and enable MFA, which again, back to the why aren't we doing these things already in some of these cases. He actually got tipped off by he was using a VPN server and there was a power outage, I think, at his house. And so his true IP address was disclosed briefly. And in the course of the investigation, after they uh, raided his house, they dis- discovered um after they raided his house. In the course of the investigation, looking over the data, they were able to discover his IP address and therefore arrest him. So the DOJ charges that, again, he used his privileged access to exceed delete logs that could have exposed his identity. And then he decides to pose as an anonymous hacker uh, and demand ransom with worth almost two, two million. And then he took it one step further and decided to trash their comms department and their security department, Ubiquities, in the process of trying to to further extort them of this money. So lots of lessons learned here, but among them, do some due diligence for your security team, because he, of course, was also responsible for the investigation of this uh, incident. Yeah, so he, he should sue the electric company for a failure of critical infrastructure. He'd be he'd be a millionaire if, uh, if they hadn't had a power failure. Yeah, that's it's a, it's a sad story, uh, but it does show that uh, sometimes you have to look close to home when you're subject to a ransomware attack. All right, just a couple of quickies i hope they're quickies uh, the if you remember the saga of jeff bezos and the inquirer posting racy and ultimately divorce worthy messages reading bezos and a girlfriend a and it led to the great i think it was daily mail maybe it was the new york post article in which it said bezos exposes pecker now, David Pecker was the head of the National Enquirer, but there was a second meaning to this that was also a... And what I'm struck by is we were told for sure this was the Saudi government doing to Bezos what it had done to Khashoggi. Bezos broke the story by saying, I'm being extorted, to, mainly, I think, by the National Enquirer. His security guy writes an op-ed saying it's the Saudis who did this. They got a couple of UN rapporteurs on press freedom and the like uh, to say, yeah, it's the kind of thing the Saudis would do. FTI, which is a forensics firm, wrote a kind of crappy report saying it was the Saudis. And it turns out that was all orchestrated and wrong. And the Wall Street Journal deserves credit for having dug into this and said, hey, remember all those investigations? The, The Southern District of New York was doing an investigation. The FBI had been notified. They've all closed the cases. This was this was the brother of the girlfriend, as most people had guessed, despite this really determined gaslighting effort by Bezos. I don't quite understand why he was so to make it about the Inquirer and the Saudis. Maybe it was valorizing himself as a First Amendment martyr. But it was. it's kind of nice that they finally came to an end, but sort of disappointing that he isn't getting more criticism for his effort to, to, to scam us all with this uh, Saudi now. And uh, the last story, uh, I think, is, I don't know whether this is a really great story or kind of a no-duh story. Uh, Wall Street Journal says that in the new era of biometrics and smartphones, it's really hard to be a human spy. 
I, I, sorry, I guess I'm full of snark on this Monday. It, it, duh. I mean, <laughs> this is like, <laughs> um, so, okay, being a little bit more serious, I think those of us who have been involved in this space know that, you know, the digital dust that this article refers to is nothing new that it's been out there, but we're creating more of it because we're connecting more things. Again, more of the kind of duh, but the, the idea that ubiquitous technical surveillance can make it difficult for particularly case officers at the Central Intelligence Agency to do their jobs. I guess I would argue, you know, what if you have somebody from the NSA doing close access surveillance? It's a similar type of challenges that maybe not as big as when you're, uh, you know, living your cover is what they're going to be told that they're supposed to do now. But I, I think probably all of us have been back. At, remember back in the day, you go to the CIA gift shop and it would say right next to the cash register, be careful what credit card you use. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the modern day version of this. Like, so, but of course the issue really is that so many countries or maybe all countries, I don't even know, because it's been so long since I left the country are using biometrics and other facial recognition systems together with CCTV, together with all of the other things that we do that create this digital dust that's making it particularly harder. At the same time, though, the article talks about what we also know to be true, which is to say, if you have no technical presence, that also can tip people off that perhaps you are trying to hide for something and for some reason. Yeah. So. And, and the idea that you can live your cover and use a non-official cover and not work out of the embassy, that's crazy. That's an enormously expensive thing. And they can still track you. Yeah. I, uh, so I, uh, the traditional answers from the human side of the house aren't good enough. There's probably still a role for, for human spies, but it is much, much harder to have people who run spies, who have assets. Meeting with your asset now is really, really hard. And it turns out that in the past, the CIA has offered them high-tech ways to communicate uh, without having a meeting, and they've all been compromised, or that's not all. There have been some serious compromises that resulted in multiple exposures of multiple agencies in multiple countries and deaths. It's a very sad story as we're trying to figure out how to uh, come to terms with this new hyper-surveilled world. So yes, I I think at the end of the the day, it's a very serious story to which the only proper response is, yeah, boy, sucks to be you. Okay. Okay. Thanks to Megan. Thanks to Nate. This was an entertaining and exciting exchange. Uh, Anybody who wants to join this and critique and vote on uh, the credibility of Nate's position, (laughs) cyberlawpodcast at (laughs) stepto.com. Don't worry. They mostly vote for you. Look forward to the results. (laughs) Exactly. I'm I'm only releasing them if they stand up on my side. But if you want want to make sure that your your views can be read by uh, Nate, uh, leave them as reviews on iTunes or Google Play or some other podcast uh, 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 aggregator. Uh, Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 386 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. (laughs) 